Good morning, church. Good to see you all here this morning. We're going to continue to worship our God together while we study his word. So if you would open up your Bible to 2 Corinthians, the New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth. So 2 Corinthians chapter 1 is where we're going to be studying in God's word here this morning. It's a joy to be uh, together. It's a joy to be back. So we've been out these past couple weeks as a family. We were on vacation, and then we went to, my nephew got married up in Carbondale, Illinois, and so that was a wonderful time of being together with family and extended family and friends uh, together, grateful for Dennis Blythe and Nate Farrow, who, who brought the word so effectively these last couple of weeks. I've listened to those messages, have been built up and edified, so I hope you have as well. Continuing this series called Brand New, Exploring what happens, what starts firing in the life of a person who uh, belongs to God. When God gives us his spirit, what are the signs of newness that we begin to experience and even display together? So I'm going to read our text in just a moment. Before I do that, just by way of introduction, I'll tell you a quick story. A woman by the name of Letty B., and she was born in 1870, and then she and her husband would become pioneer missionaries in Japan and China from 1901 until 1917 when her husband began to battle cancer. And so that forced them off the field and they ended up right back here in the US and Letty B turned her attention for six years to caring for her ailing husband until he died six years later. And out of that experience of caring for her husband, seeking solace from the Lord as she did that, came her very first book, and it's, to this day, it is the second most popular devotional ever written, and it's called Streams in the Desert by Letty B. Kalman. And she takes, as the title of her book, she takes language that's used in the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, three times in Isaiah where God tells his people, he tells his suffering people that there's this beautiful thing that he's going to be doing. And here's what Isaiah 35 verse six says, water will gush in the wilderness and streams in the desert. You fast forward Isaiah chapter 41 verse 18, I will turn the desert into a pool and dry land into springs. And then Isaiah in chapter 43 talks about the new covenant that God would establish with his people. And he said this, God says, I am about to do something new. Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And so the Apostle Paul, here in this letter to the church at Corinth, he's going to be talking about new covenant ministry. Matter of fact, he's going to talk about that explicitly by name in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. But all the way through this entire section from chapter 1 through chapter 7, the, the Apostle Paul is essentially defending his ministry, and he's defending his ministry to a church that has preferred super apostles to suffering apostles. And he begins by talking to them about the hardship and the affliction that he has endured uh, as a faithful minister of the gospel. And he's, he's gonna talk about the nature of new covenant ministry, not just to defend his own integrity, but in order to build a culture that God by his spirit would build a culture of compassionate ministry at the church at Corinth. Because here's, here's the thing, if you read through 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, you get this idea that the church at Corinth, they hated this idea of strength through weakness. Weakness was a bad word. Um, it, when they said that Paul came in fear and in trembling, they weren't complimenting him on his humility. That was a, a pejorative, that was a diss. He doesn't have that much power. 
He's not that impressive. He writes really strong letters, but when he shows up in person, he's not all that impressive. And so as a result, to encounter the church at Corinth was to encounter a church that was too focused on worldly power. It was a selfish church, a self-centered church. It was a church that lacked compassion. And so Paul strikes this tone right out of the gate from the very beginning that God's work in the gospel is not done through the powerful, but through the humble. And God's work is done through compassionate people changed by the Holy Spirit. So that brings us to our text where Paul writes these words. Beginning in verse three. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the suffering, so you will also share in the comfort. We don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. Just notice those words again. We despaired of life itself. That's not what you say if you're a super apostle. Super apostles don't flaunt their weakness. They They don't talk about openly their hard days, their sufferings and their afflictions. They're too busy looking at themselves in the mirror with their cape flapping in the wind behind them. They don't present weakness. That's not going to help us build strength in a triumphant, victorious church. Paul is not hiding the fact. He says, we were beyond our own strength. We were out of our depth. We despaired of life itself. It turns out broken saints are the best ministers. And Paul wants to teach that from the word go. Often what robs our ministry of real contact with broken people, what robs our ministry of real effectiveness isn't that we're so weak, it's that we think we're so strong. Paul's addressing that right here. I think this explains, by the way, I think this sort of thing explains the perennial appeal of writers like Henry Nouwen and Eugene Peterson and Brennan Manning because if you think they're a super apostles when you start reading their books, they're gonna convince you otherwise by the time you're done with the book. They're gonna help you grasp who they really are and who the real hero truly is and always has been. And so here in our text, in 2 Corinthians chapter one, is a kind of portrait of ministry and the first glimpse of ministry of comfort is what we might call the spring of comfort. The spring of comfort, where it all derives. Verse three, if you look at that again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. He comforts us 
in all our affliction. So here's the point for us to think about and meditate on for just a moment. God's compassion flows toward his suffering children. God's compassion flows toward his suffering children. Paul is using the term suffering again and again a couple of times in this brief passage. Very often in the New Testament, there's a sort of irony in the use of the word suffering and the word family of, of that term. Suffering so often in the New Testament is viewed as the friend of the Christian. Suffering produces, James would say, produces patience. Peter would say, don't be afraid, don't be surprised by the fiery trial as if this is something strange. We were told, Jesus told us in this world you would have tribulation and this tribulation, we don't grieve as those who are without hope. Suffering can do something in our lives. Our suffering isn't wasted, our pain isn't wasted, our cancer isn't wasted. There's a way for these things to be redeemed in the hands of a faithful God. His compassion flows toward his suffering children. The Apostle Paul, the same writer, he writes a letter to the church at Philippi and in chapter three, he says, you know what I want more than anything else? I wanna know Christ and the power of his resurrection and what? The fellowship of his sufferings. Suffering can do something in my life. Suffering conforms me to the death of Jesus. Suffering is cruciformity. Suffering enables me to take up my cross and follow him. You think about the chief metaphor of discipleship. What's the chief metaphor? Well, Jesus would come up to his disciples and he would say, follow me. Chief metaphor for discipleship is we follow Christ. Well, then that begs the question, which way did he go? If we're following Jesus, which way did he go? And the way that he went was from suffering to glory. That is the path every Christian has followed. In following Jesus, we follow him through suffering to glory. The book of Hebrews is talking to people who are tempted to look back and walk back to a life of ease in a world that has hostility and persecution toward faithful followers of Jesus and it's continuing to say, don't look back, don't go back, there's nothing back there, there's life forward, endure, persevere with Christ and Hebrews tells us to look to Jesus and it tells us to look to Jesus as a model for our own endurance and suffering. Here's Hebrews chapter 12 verse three. Consider him, it's talking about Christ, for consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Jesus walked the path first. Watch him walk the path. Think about the reality of what he laid down before us by way of example so that you won't grow weary and give up. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he said, there are three things that God uses, that combine together that God uses to make a minister. Prayer, meditation, and suffering. The late Christian author, Jerry Bridges, in 1987, his, his dear wife was diagnosed with terminal cancer, and in 1988, she died. And so from the moment she was diagnosed as he cared for his ailing wife, he was also studying scripture deeply, the scriptural themes of the sovereignty and wisdom and love of God. So diagnosed in 87, she died in 1988, and he released a book in 1989 entitled, Trusting God Even When Life Hurts. One of the best-selling books he ever wrote. 
Nearly a million people have found consolation from Jerry Bridges' study of who God is in the midst of suffering. I have a friend who was so deeply impacted by Bridges' writings and he looked for a way to actually reach out and contact him and he found a way to reach out and get on the phone with Jerry Bridges and he said he answered the phone and I said, my name is Burtis and I live in South Louisiana and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate you and he said, Bridges stayed on the phone with me for about an hour and he said, I asked him at one point, I said, Mr. Bridges, your books have been so helpful, so encouraging to me and he said, can I ask you, which of your books left the biggest impact on you? And he said, Bridges said, trusting God even when life hurts. There's a sense in which because he wrote it in the throes of caring for his terminally ill wife, it, it smells like suffering. They would say that about the writings of John Bunyan because so many of his writings came out of his, the 12 years that he was stuck in Bedford Jail. And 100 years later, George Whitfield would say his writings smelt of the prison. There's a sense of, of reality when you're receiving truth and ministry from someone who's endured great suffering. I love how commentator Judith Deal, who taught at Denver Seminary, she puts it this way in her commentary. We can get so lost in an attempt to intellectually figure out the why of suffering that we neglect to recognize the who of the one who ultimately brings much needed comfort. Don't you love the names for God in scripture? And particularly in this text, don't you love the names for God in this text? Paul speaks of God as the father of mercies. The father of mercies and the God of all comfort. So all mercy springs from God. All comfort springs ultimately from one place, according to Paul. The triune God, the, the father who sent his son to take our sin and sent his spirit to make us new. That's the source from which all comfort springs in the Christian life. So here's the question for us to think about. Are you burdened? God wants to meet you with mercy. It's good news. If your answer to the question is in the affirmative, yes, I'm burdened. God wants to meet you with Mercy, we have that as a promise from God in his word. One of my, my friends, uh, Rod Counselor, he became one of my best friends in college. And he introduced me to an artist called Tremaine Hawkins. I was not familiar with Tremaine Hawkins until college and my friendship with Rod Counselor. And my favorite song on that album, that, it came out in 1990. I went to college in 1993, so it was still sort of newish. And uh, I wore out the title track. The, the name of the album is uh, The Potter's House Live. And I wore that title track. I must have listened to that song a thousand times in college. And um, here's how the song starts. In case you have fallen by the wayside of life, dreams and visions shattered and you're all broken inside, you don't have to stay in the shape that you're in. The potter wants to put you back together again. And to this day, I've been listening to that song now since 1993. If you catch me running around the track at Herdmont, and if I happen to be playing air drums, it's probably the Potter's House that I'm listening to. This song is still my jam all these years later on, right? Because, matter of fact, I created a playlist for my daughter, Ellie, 
she's headed off to college in the fall. And I said, hey, can I do this thing? Like, what if, what if I create a playlist for you? And can we call it, I know this is cheesy, but can we call it a hug from dad? And so you're going to be on the other side of the city doing your thing, doing your college thing. And if you're down some afternoon and you just need a hug from dad, these songs are chosen on purpose. The very first song I put in the playlist, the hug from dad is the potter's house. Because that song was streams in the desert for her dad in 1993 and all the way through college. And the chorus is an invitation. Here's the chorus of the song. You who are broken, stop on by the potter's house. Invitation. I love how it names God the God of all comfort. Every conceivable form of comfort God is here for it. Friends, know this morning, if you need forgiveness this morning, you came to the right place. (laughs) The potter's house. It's a place of forgiveness. The Lord, Exodus 34, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression. If you need help this morning, good news. The potter has it for you. You came to the right place because here's what scripture says. Psalm 72, 12, for he will rescue the poor who cry out and the afflicted who have no helper. If you need mercy and you need comfort, you came to the right place. The potter has it for you because Paul says he is the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Don't you see how these words right here at the very beginning from Paul's own life of affliction begins to shape the culture of the church. You you sense the way that these words would soften the the callous, the hardened countenance of power-hungry Corinth. How this would begin to put a a dent in the armor of that church. How it would begin to awaken the impulses of, of compassion and mercy and humility. I wonder if you've ever been in a setting where, um, where the prayer word police have kind of come and parachuted in on you while you're praying, and they said, you know, you kind of got things out of order. You know, they, they tend to give you a, a checklist of things. You know, what you were supposed to do, if we rewind it and we do it over again, what you were supposed to do is say this first, and then you could start saying this other thing, after which you could then conclude with these sorts of things, right? And there's just, just checklists that you get of the things that you had to do if you wanted to do this prayer thing right. At James, his teaching in the New Testament is far simpler. Is anyone suffering? Let him pray. Now, there's a theology of prayer I can live with. There's a theology of prayer suffering and afflicted people can live with because James doesn't run your suffering through a pre-screening checklist. Hey, let's make sure we got our ducks in a row, right? He says, are you burdened? God wants to hear about it. Doesn't say cast some of your cares, cast your big cares, cast your eternally significant cares. It says cast all your cares upon him knowing that he cares for you. See, here's something about God you need to know, the Apostle Paul says. You need to know he's the father of mercies and he's the God of all comfort. Now, there's more in this passage. So we see the spring of comfort is God himself and then there are streams of comfort and that's where we come in. You see his words, he, he comforts us in all our affliction so that. So just stop there. I love the word so that in the Bible because the word so that in the Bible, whenever you see that in the New Testament, that's the Bible becoming practical. That's the, the plane of high and awesome theology lowering the landing gear and coming in to real life. Notice the, where so that turns out. 
who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. Here's the point for us. God calls his church to be a healing presence in a world of pain. A healing presence in a world of pain and ours is a world of pain. You've been watching the news these past couple weeks? Ours is a world of pain. Mass shootings. Parents who are beside themselves with grief that can't be spoken. Tears running all over our country and not just here but all around the world. Jesus built his church and then filled us with his spirit so that we might be a healing presence in a world of pain. So we might enter into the world as it is, not heaven, the world as it is, fallen world, and incarnate the love of God, incarnate the, the, the blessing and healing power of God. I love the book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. And basically that book just says, you want to minister in the real world? Dive in. You want to minister in the world? Here's where it starts. Open your eyes. Listen to the sound of weeping, groaning, burdened people. Sit with them in the ashes. Sit with them in the silence. Don't be Job's counselors with all the answers. Don't lob platitudes at people whose lives have just been blown apart. Sit in the ashes with them. Incarnate God's love. Be present. That's why I'm so grieved by what's happening in certain parts of the Southern Baptist Convention report was released recently documenting abuse in many cases perpetrated by pastors on members of their own congregations in some cases children in their congregations not false allegations many of these things led to actual prosecutions and arrests and instead of saying to the survivors many of whom were silenced or mocked for in some cases 30 years we don't believe you, false allegations. And then the truth comes to light and instead of saying, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. Now that the lights are on, we see you weren't lying. All along it was the truth. These pastors had done the unthinkable and they did it to you and we didn't even listen. We made it worse. We're so sorry. Instead of that, so-called shepherds are attacking wounded sheep. That's not how renewal swept through the first century church. That is not the way. You know what happened in the early church? Early Christian history met with many charges and accusations from the pagan Roman Empire around them. They had three, fundamentally, disloyalty. They were charged with disloyalty because they refused to worship the emperor. They were charged with atheism because they rejected the Roman pantheon and system of gods. And they were charged with cannibalism because they said something about eating flesh and drinking blood. And they assumed the worst about what those phrases might have meant when people gathered together. So Christians in the early centuries, you see them constantly trying to deflect false charges against the early Christian church. And one defense of Christianity actually came from a famous Greek philosopher named Aristides. And here's what Aristides said. He said, let me set the record straight. You know what those Christians do? They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. And they rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not ungrudgingly and without boasting. He's saying that's what those Christians are doing. 
Yes, it's weird, but it's a good kind of weird. It's strange in our world for people to do that, and that's what those Christians are marked by. Friends, our pain is not wasted when we steward it for the sake of others. So steward your pain. Your affliction is not wasted. Steward it for the sake of others. Here's what that means. God's plan for healing a suffering world involves us. We're on the hook for this. Your story of affliction and comfort is supposed to end up in streams in the desert, streams of mercy flowing toward the suffering. J.I. Packer, wonderful theologian who passed away not long ago, he wrote these words, even the Lord Jesus learned obedience by the things which he suffered and so was made perfect for his high priestly ministry of sympathy and help to his hard-pressed disciples, which means that as the one, on the one hand, he is able to uphold us and make us more than conquerors in all our troubles and distresses, so on the other hand, we must not be surprised if he calls us to follow in his steps and to let ourselves be prepared for the service of others by painful experiences. So Brook Hills, what do we do? How do we, how do we take this text and begin through the work of God's Holy Spirit to embody it toward one another, a few things for us to take home. Number one, cultivate humility. We need God to open our eyes and show us some self-awareness and show us who we are and what we are without him, that apart from him we can do nothing. We, we are not the strong ones, we are the weak ones. You learned it in the song, if you grew up in church, they are weak, but he is strong. That's the nature of the thing. We get to be weak, he gets to be strong. Faith is us tapping into, holding on to the God who is strong because we're not. Creates humility, creates compassion. Sometimes I think we give ourselves permission to just play to our strengths in the body of Christ. Right, we know, you know, there are grace people, there are truth people, I happen to be a truth person. So if you need the truth, coming in hard, I'm your guy. If you need something that's, that's bristling, something that is, that is strong and direct, a friend of mine used to jokingly say, I don't beat around the bush, I beat the bush down. Uh, which is great if all bushes need a good beating. But friends, not all ministry is supposed to be done with a sledgehammer. Matter of fact, maybe a lot of it shouldn't be done with a sledgehammer. Maybe a lot of people are genuinely trying to hold on for, for dear life. And here we come in with the sledgehammer of truth. When Jesus, it was prophesied about Jesus, when he gets here, you'll notice that a bruised reed he won't break. And a, a wick that's just barely smoldering, he won't put that wick out. He will, he will gently and patiently nurse the dying ember back to life. You'll see him when he gets here, look for that because that's what he's like. We're, we're called to be like Jesus who came in grace and came in truth. Oh, for more people in the body of Christ who are skilled in ministries of mercy, who are tender with people whose worlds have just been blown apart. Cultivate humility. Second, don't shut desperate people down. You know how we do this? We, we assume we assume we know all the factors that are at play in a person's life and we just don't. We don't know all the factors that led to what's going on in their lives. The best ministry is not you coming on the scene to correct the theology of the grieving. 
to give them platitudes, to give them all the answers, right? There's something about timing. (laughs) There's something about timing, right? Let's not go searching for sin when somebody's world just blew apart, right? That is a page lifted from the counseling school of Job's friends. And Job's friends, by the way, that's not a clinic on what we're actually supposed to be doing. That's what not to do. And yet in the body of Christ so often, that's exactly what we do. We sit in there in, in the midst of somebody's whole world is blown apart, and what do the Job's friends do? They say, you know, I mean, everything happens for a reason. So what's going on in your life? I mean, can, would you just allow me as a friend to just kind of dig around a little bit and find out why this sort of thing might have come to your doorstep? And we just dig around and find out if there's just some sin issue that you can repent of and make things right. There are good times to talk about God's purpose in trials, but so often the best thing that we can do when somebody's world's been blown apart is just say, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm gonna sit with you right here in the silence, pray for you, be your friend. What, what God gave you in your trial, and by the way, if you haven't experienced the trial, it's coming. D.A. Carson, in his wonderful book on suffering years ago, he said, here's the reality. We only have to live long enough. We will all suffer. Affliction is coming your way. If it hasn't already, affliction's coming your way. And what God gives us in our affliction and in our trial is an intangible. What's the intangible? What you bring is mainly this. Now you've felt desperation. Now you get it. Now you can finish the sentences of people who are genuinely struggling. Now you've battled doubt and unbelief. You know what that sounds like because you've heard it come out of your own mouth. You know how broken the world can feel. So if your friend who's struggling sounds like the book of Psalms, that's super healthy. And here's what we need to grasp. The book of Psalms creates a wide open space for deeply distressed people deeply burdened, struggling, sometimes irreverent people. Maybe go back and spend some time in that series we studied in November of last year for a refresher on the emotions of the Psalms. Can I I just say to those who are walking through suffering right now and are finding the Church of Brook Hills or those who are closest to you wanting in our ability to do the right thing and say the right thing. Can I just talk to you for just a second, those of you who are walking through suffering? I think the reality is we look at texts like this and and this is aspirational for us. It, It doesn't look like the brochure. We don't just read these texts and it's like, oh, all of this is happening. We're monolithic. We're a a hive intelligence here. Everybody gets it. Everybody says the right thing at all the times, right? People around you in the church want to be like Jesus, but we're still learning how. So sometimes we're all thumbs. Sometimes we speak when we shouldn't speak. Sometimes we're silent when we shouldn't be silent. If you've been a believer for a long time, I trust you have the same experience that I do. And that is that there are so many things over the last 10 years that you've learned. And if you could go back five years, you'd say things differently to suffering people. If you could pull up the transcripts of things, well-meaning things that you said to people five years ago, you'd be like, what was I thinking? That was the wrong time to bring this up. That was the wrong time to say that you didn't know what you didn't know, right? So the question isn't, do you have a perfect record of timely counsel as a member of the Church of Brook Hills? The question is, are we learning from our mistakes or are we doubling down in our mistakes? 
Are we learning? Are we becoming more humble, more compassionate? Paul told the church of Thessalonica, he said, I want you to minister to one another, and here's how. Warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, and be patient with everyone. Just look at those words on the screen for a second. Warn 25% of the ministry here in 1 Thessalonians. 25% is warning. The rest is comfort, help, and patience. That's a pretty good ratio, right? For a church that's struggling and in the midst of pain and difficulty, 25% warning and 75% is comfort, help, and patience. That feels about right in a fallen world, doesn't it? Cultivate humility, don't shut desperate people down, and finally, remember grace doesn't stop with us. We uh, went to the beach last week, and while we were there, it's just a... one of those things, I kind of did a retroactive while I'm sitting there under my umbrella and I'm watching all these different families and our kids are old enough where they can do their own thing. They're either reading a book or they're laying out or they're running toward the water or whatever they might, our youngest is 17 years old. So, and then I'm looking around at these younger families and I'm like, the work, oh my, this is not vacation for them and them and them. they're just working so hard. All of them are gonna be petered out at the end of the day, right? Just incredible work that it goes into, right? But, but not only that, but you remember those days as an earlier parent of young children and there was a lot of work, but there was a lot of fun. And I remember when, when our kids were younger and we'd build this, the sandcastle, right? And, and you try to get the sandcastle at the right spot. And once you're done with that, then you get to dig the big deep moat all the way around the castle, just tons of fun. And then there was the moment where if you position the castle right, you positioned it where the water wasn't constantly running over the castle because then you'd have to constantly be doing construction uh, work. But if you, if you put it close enough to the water, every now and then that one wave that was stronger than the other ones would come rolling up over and then it would pour, you'd cut a path and it would pour, the water would come trickling down and then it would run all the way around the moat and everybody would dance. It's like, yeah, how cool is that? The, the water from the ocean ended up right around our moat. We didn't have to truck it over there. We just cut a path from the ocean straight to the castle, right? I think that captures what's going on in 2 Corinthians chapter one. There's a sense in which stretching out into forever is the bottomless ocean of the compassion and mercy of God. And God invites his people. In that word, so that, He's saying, cut a path. Cut a path from the vast ocean depths of gospel mercy to the people who live next door. Cut a path to the people in your small group, the depths of gospel mercy to the needs of brothers and sisters. God promised in the Old Testament that through the new covenant there would come this thing called streams in the desert. And, and Jesus would tell his disciples, he says, I'm gonna breathe on my people and rivers of living water are gonna come from them out into the world. Read the book of Acts next time and as you read it, think about the book of Acts as the gospel going from one city to another and what you're seeing is the world renewing gospel turning deserts into gardens. Everywhere the gospel goes, healing goes, flourishing goes, Joy goes, comfort goes, mercy goes. Everywhere gospel people go, all those things go. Flourishing goes where the gospel goes. God turns deserts into gardens wherever the people 
go. The gospel creates a culture. That's why Paul is talking to Corinth in this way. He wants the church to become tender with suffering people. That divided, fractured assembly in Corinth needed this as an opening word. Again, Judith Deal in her commentary says this, to follow Christ means to relate to each other with the mind of Christ. That is, to relate to each other as Christ did to us in servanthood and humility. Compassion then can never be separated from community. Compassion always reveals itself in community in a new way of being together. That's how this text creates a connection to brand new. Compassion can never be separated from community. It always reveals itself in community. What would that look like for us this week? How this week, you're called by God, you're a part of his church, how are you gonna cut a path from the bottomless mercies and comforts of God to the person who sits next to you in small group? To the person who's lonely? How can your friendship be a a presence, a gift of God's grace in the darkness that your friend is walking through? How can your encouragement be used by God this week to be like streams in the desert? 